And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We're located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice. Spoken word programming here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. And we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up on the show today, in the first hour from uh, the December 4th, Open mic reading. In the end, the journey continues a monthly series held at the Elm Cafe. You'll hear readings by Gwen Whitford, Quentin Kerr, Jenny Marshall, Michelle McTagg, McTagg, I believe it is, uh, Sarah Emtage, and uh, Sasha Hill. And following that, uh, from uh, a November 12th book launch at Novel Idea for uh, a nonfiction anthology called Swelling with Pride, Queer Conception and Adoption Stories, you'll hear a welcome to the event by... uh, MC editor of that uh, anthology and MC Sarah Grafe and the first of four readings that evening uh, that one by Emily Cummins Woods in the second hour uh, the whole show will be devoted to the rest of that launch so again from the November 12th Swelling with Pride book launch you'll hear the remaining recorded readings that evening Jane Byers Sarah Grafe and Susan Myers and Kira Myers Gidden. Uh, this verse, though, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, and music uh, played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. I will have a fair amount of time, actually, uh, in between uh, the open mic and the start of the launch to... Uh, share a number of upcoming open mic readings or, and uh, and uh, other events uh, before we move into the launch re- or the open mic readings uh, that I'm going to air and before we move into the launch readings. Uh, and that'll happen in the first hour today. Uh, so hope, hope you're tuned in for the whole show so you will catch that as well. First, though, let's go ahead and just jump in from the December 4th open mic reading. In the end, the journey continues monthly series held at the Elm Cafe. You'll hear a reading by Gwen Whitford. First, Gwen Whitford, let's bring her up. Good evening, everyone. Actually, I'm going to start off tonight's session with a short piece of prose. It is, in fact, a tribute to my late father, who passed away on this day in 1991. It's called Winter Reflection. I remember the last time I saw my father, just like it was yesterday. Canada Day 1991 was a foggy one in Halifax. Because of the dreary weather, I had taken my visiting parents to see the world-famous Nova Scotia International Tattoo. At the conclusion of this military spectacle, I couldn't help but notice the tears in Pa's eyes. When I think back on it, I wonder if this World War II Royal Canadian Air Force veteran sensed that he was about to embark on his final flight to the heavenly place 
where all his long-lost buddies awaited him. Not long after that summer, a massive stroke took his life. My father quickly departed without any fanfare or ado. Our last phone conversation will stand out forever in my mind. This is going to cost a bundle. I'll pay for it, he said. No way, Pa. I called you, so it's mine. I insisted. Well, all right then, he relented. I'll get the next one. But that was never to be. So I seek consolation in all kinds of memories. Vote for the NDP, he'd maintained since I was a little girl. No other party represents the ordinary person. We have the basic right to clean air and water, and I'm going to fight for it, he occasionally declared at the dinner table. Most of the community was skeptical. That little man going up against big business, he must be crazy, they whispered to each other at church. In his 1943 military admission records, the self-introduction is compassionate and respectful. All people are created equal, he wrote. No person is better than another. His prospector canoe was his pride and joy, but frequently his communion with nature was unpleasantly interrupted. Darn motorboats, he'd complain. Don't those people know they're frightening the birds and fish to death? No concern for anyone but themselves. One time, I asked him if I could get some spray for the ugly green worms on the tomato plants. Get a clothespin and pinch them off, he instructed. Those worms won't hurt you, but the poison sure will. To Paul, there was never any reason to get discouraged. Keep on the sunny side, always on the funny side of life, he chirped in an uneven tenor. With no time to be idle, his brief retirement was filled with projects. I've always wanted a sailboat. She's not perfect, but she's seaworthy, he modestly professed upon completing his 16-footer with his own hands. We haven't taken the boat out since Pa died, but maybe next summer we'll have the heart to sail her, and when winter closes in, we'll put her back in the garage. Then I'll reflect on that mournful December day. Except this time, I won't get downhearted. Instead, I'll celebrate his life and cherish those special memories. Rest in peace, Pop. That's Gwen Whitford. Let's give another hand. And you just heard Gwen Whitford uh, at the December 4th open mic reading in the End the Journey Continues uh, monthly reading series, again, held at the Elm Cafe. Up next from it, here is Quentin Kerr. Up next, we have Quentin Kerr. Kerr? Kerr. Kerr. Quentin Kerr. Let's bring him up. So I've got two poems um, today, and closer. Can you all hear me? 
Um, and I'm a little nervous um, and also new, so if anyone has feedback afterwards, uh, I'd love to hear it. Right, so the first one is called uh, New Pen. Bought a new pen today. Red nib, sweet and thin. Ink like the line between sky and lake. Worried, though. New pen, see, nice ink. Even my laundry list looks profound. The park is empty, cold city streets, pockmarked lawns, thin trees like the line between now and then. White bone a notebook yawns up at me, new pen sneering, as if to say, get on with it. Worried, though, today. It's one of those days, even littered coffee cups look auspicious. But from the sordid blue-black wings, the crow calls out, as if to say, such is life. Or maybe I misheard. Maybe it was butcher's knife or fudge's strife. Hard to be sure today. Um, and then the second one is called This City. Thin sun through splattered gray in the late afternoon. Shallow light from off the bay spills towards this room where it greets the incense of that life. Stale beer, sweat, supermarket spruce, Heinz tomato soup, and just a whiff of brimstone. And later, outside the seahorse, treading water above those lovely depths, spitting blue smoke and salt water from burnt lungs, it rains again. The pitter-patter like fingers through my hair, grinning dog-eared drunks preach, ain't no way to live that isn't gonna kill you, just gotta find the sweetest way to die. And later, in the hollow memory of that hollow morning, it rains again. Dartmouth is gone, along with every other world across the bridges that lead to Halifax. And ancient in that old white wool, knobbled stone streets sleep, salt slick and tender. New York is the city that never sleeps. This is the city that never dries up. What's Quentin Carr? Let's give him another hand. And that was Quentin Kerr at the December 4th open mic reading in the End the Journey Continues monthly open mic reading series. Always held now at the Yum Cafe. Up next from it, here is Jenny Marshall. Up next, Jenny Marshall. Let's bring her up. This poem is called... Ogres have layers. I struggle to locate some semblance of sensitivity oozing from your stony countenance. Are you merely granite or simply afraid that I might slash your vulnerable essence hidden neath a mask of structured apathy? Now, rolling along, this one's a little cheerier. It's called uh, Gift of Yourself. When you were a child, you could make people laugh. They wanted to reach out to you. The reason was simple. You were loving freely. 
and giving the gift of yourself. But as we grow older, the giving grows harder. We hide behind our mask and our indifference. Father, let our light shine. Help us pour ourselves to everyone. Teach us to live and give of ourselves. There's no better gift to give in this hectic world in which we live than that special gift of yourself. Thank you. Jenny Marshall, let's give her another hand. And that was Jenny Marshall at the December 4th uh, reading in the End the Journey Continues Open Mic Monthly Reading Series. Up next from it, here is Michelle McTagg. Hope I'm saying this right. Up next, Michelle McTagg. 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 Let's bring her up. This is a set of poetry called In Tune With You. In Tune With You, a set of poems that shines light in the dark, but the moon shines on the fields. Slaving harvests make their ghosts, and I'm finally alive with you. Freedom is just a thought away. His women cries from lust and pages. The scroll of judgment, naked in the eye of the beholder, she falls to her knees. Taken by a blunt knife, dragging across his cheek, he becomes bare to her. In the grapevine hung a picture of a child, a shadow of creation. And through his creation I breathe. The air hangs stale, yellow and stained, but even so it is his gift. Lit in flames of the blackened muse that holds the breath of life, I am tied to a line in which her lives are hung like linen from lustful nights. I hear his voice turning to the world into my shadow, and I am broken. And the moonlit rain fell as they danced, and their love became blessed. Although in time they made a ruin that held a passing word, the child awoke to. Hollow branches that held the colors, that the ground captured, dissolved, grew bare, and then turned to a white dust, and then grew from the dead to the green arcs that covered the hollow wood that he cut, willing a cross for his first child. And from the seed that formed the page, the commandments written, the dead signing off. The first child begins to grow from a seed of fallen sprout that came from the cross. She begins a life. And the second who sees her father within her time and her mother as she stands by, she is freed from the web. And the third is now lost, but will be found guilty of being the last tied to the dead and the living. They died leaving what they created. A beautiful life is cut, but as we grow from the spear of the leaf, Within the roots, a life entire will be once more. Blackened innocence. Counting fields picked for her death. A hidden number against her skin. And he claimed she was free. But as she prayed, she forgot the words. And living with her drew angels from under the carpet, but were mistaken for dust. Laughing in stitches that burst. Stained, she lost her heart to the floor and fell to servants' feet. Feeling stands upon the shoreline, 
soaking through the heaviness against your souls of a once dry and perfect imagining of eternity. And the sand is to be counted with his gracious footprints and figures above us that hold still amongst the stars. And the tide washes our skin with salty waves that if we drink in, we will fall together for the last time. Gazing at the embers dancing against the flame of matches made, judges' hammers ring through the pews where they burn, and they scorched our hearts, and blackened with ashes, we are beyond our love. In tune with you, in tune with you, droplets fall once, droplets fall only once, down the stems of dampened fingers, gardens' honest wills dispute, between righteous evils fall, captured doves fret the night, lunges at together's glory, through the walls made from trying hands, in tune with you, the ruins will ring for the love of you and I. That was Michelle McTagg. Let's give her another hand. And you just heard Michelle McTagg at uh, the December 6th and the Journey Continues open mic uh, reading series. The reading that evening again held at the Elm Cafe. Up next in it, here is Sarah M. Tish. Up next, Sarah M. Tish. Let's bring her up. month was November, and that was National Novel Writing Month, so I took a little break from, well, sort of, but not a complete break from writing poetry. I'm not going to share the novel, it's a mess. But during writing the novel, um, I, uh, I, you know, got sick of writing prose and had to switch a little to it to poetry, so I wrote a very short poem that has to do with the novel, with the story of the novel. Um, sort of a fantasy novel, there's griffins and things. Anyway. Uh, so I think even without the context of the story it's in, this will make about as much sense as anywhere. So the first, it's, uh, it's called Kingless. There is no king in the valley of Vale. There is no sun in the sky. The milk and the bread are sour and stale, and the truth is disguised as a lie. And that's about that. <laughs> um, uh, this next one is just called Code. Poetry is code, and you are owed no explanation. This very stanza is the stage to wage my war. These syllables are signaling in secret to my allies, while you are left with crumbs upon the floor. Um, and this was going to be my last one, but because there's not that big of a lineup, I might share something more from my book after. Um, I kind of wanted to go, I was going by the ones I picked, which I just wanted to pick something I'd actually um, written more recently, rather than just always going back to the, an older store of them. So these, these three um, are fairly recent, but anyway, one more called Crowned, and then I guess something from the book. Okay. Some cities are the crown of a hill. This city is the crown of a head. A crown on the head of a giant king whose voice is like thunder and lead. And we held a great citizen's council and elected a confident mayor. But wherever he tells us we're going, the giant just takes us elsewhere. And I think I know what one I want to pick. 
Okay. This is called Making Conversation. No, can't speak. Making Conversation. In the beginning was the word, and he spoke to the darkness and turned it to light. He stretched out our lungs and he crafted our throats and he detailed our tongues and our lips. He breathed in our nostrils the breath of his life so that we in return could breathe the meaning in sounds to sink into, ear, into airs, to strike on the drums, to be heard and to bear a spark of the life that he gave. We breathed in and broke up the silence of earth. We took air and spoke in the birth of our mirth, reflecting and echoing, untying knots, dancing and advancing and dueling thoughts. The word made these wonders, and he said, it is good. It is a good thing to listen and to be understood. That was Sarah Hemtage. Let's give her another hand. And that was Sarah M. Tige at uh, the December 4th open mic reading in the And the Journey Continues open mic reading series. And as I mentioned, always held at the Elm Cafe. Up next from it, uh, and will be the final poet I hear today from this event. Uh, I'll explain more after that, but here is Sasha Hill. Up next, Sasha Hill. Let's bring her up. Um, the first one is a bit longer and it's about someone who I used to know it's been a year been a minute where have you gone across an ocean of losses bullet holes in your jacket don't bother to write you can't with two hands occupied one on the bottle one in the powder Gun smoke between your ears, living life through a barrel of a shotgun, wishing you would disappear. Can you see? Everything is mirages here, disguised anonymity, fleeing at night, vision hazy, dazed, confused, how you got here? Thousands of decisions leading you to hedonism. Paradise that you can only see through glazed eyes. You wake up in the morning, dawn flooding on your skin, asking where you've been. Light burning your weary eyes, face the shadow. It's digging your grave for you. Shed the clothes of misgivings, don the robe of pure living. Sewn together, will you ever feel whole again? And you've heard this before, but you were too busy fornicating with bad behavior. Don't do this, don't do that. You're at rock bottom. Ocean barnacle tentacle hands groping in the dark for a semblance of genuine connection. You are desperately needing attention. So you cling to posts that are well received so you can believe that you exist in this web of parties leading into the next. Why don't you raise your head and take a breath? Where have you gone? Flooding paper bags with bubbling questions, collapsing in another's arms. What if no one caught you? 
You still believe in the world above, one on the hunt for love. Why won't you tell me where have you gone? Living every day like you only got one Left inside your head cycling past loved ones Hazy days, youthful glances Lullaby yourself putting the self into trances What are you trying to forget? From the other side of the world, way down under, underworld, I think you found your home in the bones of what you've been running from. Crossed a notion of hopeless notions, ambitions that were spun into a rug that you threw up on last night after a bar fight. Lost a tooth, the stomach can't handle this rebelling youth. Hangover with no cure, daytime ambition, nighttime demons. It's the cycle we're on, so we ask it again, where have you gone? Lost inside the world you call your home, the one in your dome, and perceptions fall short of reality, and I can ask you this question, but you can't ask me, where have I gone, living my life like I only have one, and whisper your fantasies to me, let me see them pure as daylight streams, for if you share with yours, I can open up about mine, read them like a book, contemplate life itself, because when you come with me, you see both heaven and hell, and salvation was written on the insides of her eyelids. Every time she blinked, her future flashed before her eyes, and she bleached her eyelashes, so she never looked back again. It's not a story of me. It's a story of a friend of a friend. Then I have my second one. This one's more recent. Forget me not, flowers bloom in your hands when you greet me. Arms outstretched because really when you hug me hello, you are forgiving yourself for all those goodbyes. Fleeting moments carried in my jean pockets for eternity. Let me wander in your memories under a starless sky because you stole all the glitter for that twinkle in your eye. Thank you very much. What's Sasha Hill? Let's give her another hand. And that was Sasha Hill at the December 4th open mic reading in the end. The Journey Continues monthly series now held at the Elm Cafe. And as I mentioned, uh, we'll be the last reader I'll air today from that event. Uh, and uh, we're, as I mentioned, if you didn't catch it at the top of the show, we're moving into a book launch in about, oh, almost... Uh, at least 18 minutes, 17 minutes, something like that. Uh, but uh, what I want to do is uh, share a number of upcoming calls and events. And uh, there's just so much going on, and especially this coming week. I think there's like a dozen events uh, between this Saturday and next Sunday. So I want to try to get to some of those and keep you on top of that. And uh, before we do that, though... I do have to do this as well, and uh, then we'll get back into it. And after all of this, we'll begin uh, the book launch readings uh, from the Swelling with Pride book launch that was held in November. Here's this. The Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance, widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups 
that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group, while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. Folk Everything. Every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red to James, that's a fine motorbike. The Youth Diversion Program is a charitable organization which has offered service to youth in the Kingston area since 1974. The goals of the organization are to allow youth to take responsibility for their behavior, to reduce the number of youth involved in the young offender system, to reduce the number of people victimized by youth in our community, and to involve the community in youth corrections. The Youth Diversion Program believes that all members of our community have the responsibility to provide all youth the opportunity to develop and grow to their fullest potential. They work in partnership with the community to develop quality programs to assist youth to make positive changes in their lives and at the same time take responsibility for their actions. For further information, call 613-548-4535 or email info at youthdiversion.com. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. Walk Home is one of the services provided to you by the Alma Mater Society at Queen's University. Walk Home is a completely confidential and anonymous service where students will pick you up and walk you to any location within our extensive boundaries. We are located in the Lower Cayley of the John Deutsch University Centre. You can request a walk by dropping by the kiosk or by calling 613-533-9255 during our hours of operation. We are open every night from dusk till 2am, Sunday to Wednesday, or till 3am from Thursday to Saturday. During exam season, we are open until 4am. Last year, we completed over 10,000 walks, walking the equivalent distance of crossing the width of Canada and back. So whether you're feeling unsafe, want someone to walk with after a night at the library, or feel more comfortable walking downtown with someone, call Walk Home. If you have any questions about the service, please feel free to contact us by calling 613-533-9255 or by emailing walkhome at ams.queensview.ca.
And welcome back. You are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. Uh, This is, uh, again, Finding a Voice, spoken word show airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And as I mentioned, uh, I... And want to share a number of uh, upcoming calls and events, and I really don't know where to start. I think maybe I'll do the events first because there are so many of them, especially coming up uh, this week. Many of them between uh, now and uh, next Friday. So. I won't get a chance to share them again. And most of the calls are open longer than these events past this coming week, although there is one I'll share. Okay, let's do this. Uh, There's a brand new, and they're having their inaugural event at uh, 99 York Street, the the community house at 99 York. Uh, It is called Billing Itself, a community open mic night. Uh, Their inaugural event will be tomorrow evening. They welcome poetry, comedy, music, or anything else you wish to share is what they say. Uh, It will be a bi-weekly series at the Community House. It begins, and that's at 99 York Street, begins at 7 p.m. and will happen then every other Saturday uh, after February 2nd. So I believe that makes the next one February 16th. Uh, They don't yet have, it's brand new, don't have a Facebook uh, page or anything like that. Uh, But uh, you can contact Julia at 416-274-2105. Again, 416-274-2105 if you uh, want uh, more information or find out about what's going on. So... There you go. I think eventually they will have a Facebook page and probably other places where you can find information. Uh, but that's uh, that's what you have for now. So there you go. And come check it out. Okay, there is a new play, and uh, 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 it's called uh, What a Young Wife Ought to Know. And it's uh, being held at the Baby Grand at uh, in the Grand Theater, uh, which is located, I think everybody knows, but it's 218 Princess Street here in Kingston. Uh, their website for more information, www.theaterkingston.com. And what I'm going to do is to hurry through these, I'm not going to give you a lot of information, but I will at least give you a contact point. So if you're interested, uh, that way I can get a few more of these in today, uh, in this few minutes today. Okay, and then uh, that's, uh, and that actually runs. It already started. Uh, in fact, their preview was on Tuesday, uh, Tuesday the 29th. It will be running through February 17th. Uh, there are Saturday matinees on, it looks like Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday. Anyway, www.theaterkingston.com, and the play is called What a Young Wife Ought to Know. Uh, then, uh, this coming s- Sunday at the Grizzly Grill upstairs, 395 Princess Street, uh, it's the Juvenus Festival 2019 launch. Uh, and it says just uh, briefly here, want to be the first to know what Juvenus 2019 has in store. Uh, it will be on Sunday. Uh, 
again, February 3rd, 7.30 p.m., uh, again, upstairs at the Grizzly Grill, all-ages event with free food, and uh, they will be announcing all their projects for this year. And uh, there is a Facebook page for it, so just uh, type in uh, that title and should take you let you find it it's the juvenus festival 2019 launch there is also i should mention because i'm airing some events from it today and most people are used to it because it's kind of been going on for a long time uh, but the next uh, and the journey continues monthly open mic reading held at the elm cafe i think just about everybody knows it's the first tuesday night of the month well, uh, they had a pipe break in uh, during burst and caused a lot of damage to the back of the store. So they've been busily repairing that. Our next reading would have been, obviously then, uh, first Tuesday of the month, this coming Tuesday on February 5th. But uh, they're getting close, I believe, to getting it all fixed. But I wanted to take pressure off, so we, uh, the owners of the cafe and I have decided that just in case they run into a snag or something it would be better to move that to the 12th so I'm just saying that I'm not really announcing the event uh, that's coming up but I don't want people to drive there thinking there's going to be an event and there isn't an event because they're not even open in the evening so there you go but if you're in Tweed Another, again, first Tuesday night of the month uh, poetry series held at the Tweedsmere Tavern, downtown Tweed. There's, uh, their event uh, is coming up, as usual, on uh, the first Tuesday night, so February 5th, and it is called the First Tuesday Muse. And uh, they do have a Facebook page for it as well so you can find out more there but their event runs from 7 to 9 p.m the following night wednesday night here in kingston again uh three ottawa poets uh, will be reading uh to launch their books of poetry uh they're all from ottawa coming here on wednesday evening novel idea bookstore everybody knows what that is i believe but corner princess and baggett 156 princess there's a facebook event page for it uh and if you type in Kingston Three Ottawa Poets Reading, uh, you will. I'll just give you their names here, but there's more, way more information on in the Facebook page. But Jean Van Loon, Deanna Young, and Jenny Hasem will all be uh, reading. It's uh, I think these books came out last year, so not really a launch, but it's a three poet reading event, and uh, that's how you can pull the Facebook page up too as well. Uh, Kingston. Dash three Ottawa poets reading should take you right there. Uh, there is a uh, <clears throat> this, and then the following night, <laughs> I told you it was a busy week. It's uh, the undergraduate review and the Queen's Love Without Borders is uh, sponsoring and hosting a night of poetry, comedy, and music. Uh, this will be at the mansion, and I'm quite sure everybody knows what that is, 506 Princess Street. 
And uh, that will the event will run this coming Thursday, February seventh, from seven to nine p.m. Or no, I'm sorry, February seventh, from nine p.m. to midnight. And so they, there is a Facebook event page for that too. So undergraduate review and uh, Queen's Love Without Boundaries again hosting it. So their abbreviations are in the title. So it's just you are. And then it looks like Times QLWB Open Mic Night. Uh, look that up in uh, Facebook, and it should take you there. Uh, Modern Fuel is starting a new public program. Uh, it's called Read In, and it's a reading series salon featuring a selection of short texts recommended by artists of Modern Fuel's current exhibition. So, as I understand it, this is their inaugural event. It's coming up this Saturday, or not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow, February 9th from 1 to 3 p.m. And uh, if you don't know, Modern Fuel are uh, art- artist center is in suite uh, 305 of the Tet and 370 King Street West. Uh, it is free and open to all, and uh, I'm guessing this is their debut event. Let me just give you their website for more information. Oh, they've got an email address here, but you can also go to their website. Uh, I believe it is uh, www.modernfuel.org, and uh, you should easily be able to find uh, this event there. Uh, then on uh, a week from Saturday and Sunday... Kingston Writers Fest and Loving Spoonful are having a bake sale, and it says, grab your toonies and loonies and clear off some shelf space. It says uh, Kingston Writers Fest is having a book sale. Uh, I happened to look at the Kingston Writers Fest uh, website today. I did not, and maybe I just didn't look hard enough or... Or maybe I was, yeah, I'm blaming myself. I just didn't see anything listed there, but there is a Facebook event page for it. Uh, so it is, I, I think if you just, because uh, I copied this from their Facebook page, I think if you just type in Kingston Writers Fest and Loving Spoonful Bake Sale uh, was actually the title of the event. It should just take you right there. It will run again uh, February 9th, Saturday, February 9th, and Sunday, February 10th. And uh, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And uh, there is time, I think, for one more. Uh, Skeleton Park Arts Festival presents, and it's called Sunrise on Ice. It's a poetry installation. Uh, Olivia Aus, a uh, grade 11 student from Regiopolis, has written a response poem uh, to last year's Night Skaters uh, that was done, Night Skaters Skeleton Park, uh, an installation uh, with a poem created by Steve Height, Stephen Heighton. And that will be uh, on uh, Sunday, a week from Sunday, February 10th, from 2 to 5 p.m. Uh, it will be held in McBurney Park. So that's as far as I'm going to get. I do need to now start to slide over. And again, thanks. Uh, hopefully you can catch some of those events. And uh, just uh, remind you, you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC. Let's go ahead and move now into the November 12th book launch and reading held at Novel Idea Bookstore. Uh, the book, Swelling with Pride, Queer Conception and Adoption Stories. 
and uh, that will uh, and finish this hour, essentially. I might have just a minute or two uh, to uh, sign off this hour and into the next. Uh, but uh, you, what you'll hear now is the first of four uh, readings that evening, and so you'll hear a welcome to the event by MC and host Sarah Grafe. And uh, the first reading, then, that was recorded by Emily Cummins-Woods. Lelatooth First Nations in Vancouver, B.C. And uh, before we begin, I also want to acknowledge the land we're gathered on this evening, um, which is the ancestral uh, traditional territory of Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I'm not from these parts. Haudenosaunee peoples. And we are grateful to live, live and work here, uh, learn and share our stories here. And I'm grateful to be here as a visitor as well. Um, and so I'm super excited to be in Kingston, uh, where we're sort of on a book tour. We, we launched in Toronto over the weekend and having stops in Montreal and Ottawa, but particularly excited about this event um, uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, Swelling with Pride contains stories uh, by 25 LGBTQ writers across North America. And other than Vancouver and Toronto, those big urban centers, the, uh, we, the next sort of biggest concentration of writers is from the Kingston area, which is pretty fabulous. Um, we have uh, Eamon McDonald, sorry, Eamon McDonald, Emily Cummins-Woods, and Susan Myers, who all live here in town. And we also have Kira, Kira Myers-Giddon and Jane Byers, who both grew up here. And then I also have ties with Kingston. I grew up in Ottawa, so I'm also an Eastern Ontario girl. But I actually lived here for four years while I was doing my BA at Queen's. And so it feels a bit like being welcomed home. Um, <laughs> those were such sort of crucial formative years, both as an emerging writer and as a closeted baby dyke. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's cool to come back with this book and, you know, and, and now being sort of out and proud in my life. and. Uh, some familiar faces, uh, and Hardcastle, who directed a number of shows I wrote here as a playwright. We mounted them at the Baby Grand. John Lazarus, who I knew in Vancouver, as a baby playwright. So yeah, thank you all for, for coming out. Um, so Swelling with Pride is the book I wish that had been out there when uh, my spouse and I had our first conversations about wanting to have a baby. And uh, my kid just turned 11 before Halloween, so this was, <laughs> this was a decade ago now. So uh, this book's had a long gestation. And the premise of the book is that basically just as every queer person has uh, their own unique coming out story, every LGBTQ family has a unique conception or adoption story. There's sort of no one straightforward path to parenthood when you're, when you're queer. Um, sort of biological and societal barriers have forced us to get really creative when we are thinking about having children come into our lives. So this book attempts to collect those stories and share those stories. And the, the stories that ended up um, being submitted for this book are powerful, moving, and wonderfully diverse. And you're going to get a taste of that tonight with our local readers. So um, how the evening's going to work, we're going to hear readings from Eamon McDonald, Emily Cummins-Woods, Jane Byers, yours truly, and finishing up with the mother-daughter team, Susan Myers and Kara Myers-Gitton. People have questions, so we can chat a little bit after that, and then there'll be time to uh, mingle. I think Oscar's brought in some wine and some some nibbles, um, so there'll be time to sort of mingle and chat and buy a book. Uh, we'd all be happy to sign it for you. Okay, next up we have Emily Cummins Woods. 
So Emily is a registered social worker specializing in work with youth at risk. She brings an innovative and creative spirit to her facilitation and project coordination and has a passion for and background in dance, film, and writing. Born and raised in Montreal, she currently lives with a partner and children right here in Kingston, Ontario. Um, before I start, I wanted to dedicate this reading to my dad. Always so supportive. When I came out in 1995, he, he, he was most concerned about whether I was still going to have kids. <laughs> he loved being a grandpa. I wish I could say it happened one full moon evening, the candlelight creating suggestive shadows on the wall as our bodies moved together, building in rhythm that this sexy woman I had married brought me to the edge of ecstasy, inserting the magical ingredient just as I crested over the edge and took in our combined love, hopes, and dreams, that nine months later, a healthy baby would effortlessly appear. <laughs> My perfect lesbian conception fantasy. <laughs> the truth <laughs> is a much more awkward whirlwind of a dance. Alice and I met over 18 years ago in a university class on Eastern religions. She and I, still so naive about real grown-up life, had serious doe eyes for each other. Things really began for us after a new moon women's circle, when Alice bravely asked me out. Within days after our first date, when she wore those wild red pants and shivered through first kisses in the trees, we had already checked with each other that each of us wanted children, which was kind of odd for 23-year-olds in the late 90s. Fast forward several years, we traveled together, did organic farming in Europe and PEI, and settled into our first apartment together in Montreal with a couple of cats. Lesbians. <laughs> I gently nudged Alice into proposing to me. <laughs> she did a sweet job. <laughs> and we had a magical community-oriented wedding soon after it was legal to do so. We felt we had made a nice box to put kids into and decided it was time to start Project Family. We made a list of potential studs including a former gay roommate whose rejection of our invitation made me sad for years. We asked a couple of other men, getting more frustrated each time. Jack off in a cup, sign here, how hard could it be? <laughs> <laughs> Finally, a totally wonderful guy we knew said yes. He had his blood and sperm tested. We wrote up a contract, signed it, knowing it wasn't really legally binding, but it would at least express our mutual intent. No responsibilities towards each other, no co-parenting, no demands. Alice and I both agreed I would try first, since I really wanted to get pregnant. We got seriously fertility savvy by charting my periods and checking cervical mucus. <laughs> Stretchy. Um, <laughs> when we finally tried conceiving in 2007, we did light candles and attempt a romantic frame of mind, similar to the initial fantasy. We were giggling as Alice filled a syringe with semen. It's so gooey at first. <laughs> Liquefying eventually in a unique smell. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> we were so careful to get every drop of our liquid gold. There were some kisses between us, but mostly we were anxious to get my legs up the wall. <laughs> so I had every expectation that we would hit a home run. I thought my egg would get out its biggest catcher's mitt, and when it saw those sperms swimming forward for the first time. I floated through those next two weeks, graciously loving every jerk driver and rude client. Alice and I were generous with each other, too, taking a belated honeymoon to Glastonbury 
snuggling in the mornings and making plans for our family life. I was totally, and I mean totally, unprepared for that first one-line pregnancy stick followed by a period. The book of rules for the world as I knew it had burned to ashes. My female parts had betrayed me. We rallied and tried again, and then again. The romantic flavor of the project was beginning to ebb. <laughs> Our donor moved to the US, and we still drove the seven hours down when I happened to be ovulating on weekends. I went to Reiki, counseling, osteopathy, meditation, yoga. I visualized the heck out of all of it, imagining funny scenarios like the egg being this sweet gay surfer and the sperm and arriving gang of bikers with a burly stud in the lead. <laughs> I enjoyed those playful images, but often my visualizations were more about finding my shadows and trying to shed light into broken places, finding closed doors and opening them wide. Despite these efforts, every cycle felt like the proverbial person who keeps walking down into the same hole despite knowing it's there. Eventually, exhausted by travel and timing, we reluctantly decided to stop using that donor. Next, we decided to try the clinic. Good Lord. Our whole life and bodies were laid bare. Since lesbians are considered functionally infertile, we would at least be able to use the hospital service in Ontario, which provided free testing and insemination. Ironically, we sat in the same room as women getting abortions. After an intimate physical and many questions, we then had to be cleared by a psychiatrist. Which probably you guys haven't had to do necessarily. Um, the reward for passing a psych test, besides the dubious distinction of being considered sane enough to become parents, a hysterocell pingogram, HSG. If you've never had an HSG, I wouldn't wish it on you even if you were truly wicked or get pregnant really easily. <laughs> A special tiny speculum is inserted into the cervix. Fluid is then shot up and into each fallopian tube to make sure it's clear. I barely got through them t checking one. At least we were, begin we were clear to begin. Looking at those catalogs is like being in an anthropological experiment. Mm -hmm. Who will the white middle class lesbos choose? <laughs> Mr. Perfect must be intelligent, kind, and ideally have features similar to Alice's. We wanted them to be mentally and physically healthy with careers and what seemed like a decent head on their shoulders. We opted for a European-based company in Copenhagen, since they only allowed 10 families to be created per donor, unlike American sperm banks of 35. We fantasized about going to Denmark with our future children when they turned 18, introducing them to the happiest people on earth, meeting their, <laughs> meeting their donor Titus or maybe Sven. <laughs> it costs more for the right to contact the donors when our kids reach, reach legal age, though, and the sperm you see was not free. Plus, we were recommended to use two, two vials per cycle, which totaled $1,400 a month. Wow. We got a line of credit. <laughs> Despite the cost and with renewed enthusiasm, we bravely jumped into this new stage of our family making. This no-nonsense nurse made us sign the form to confirm this it was the correct donor number on the vial. Was it? I couldn't remember. It seemed right. <laughs> we held hands as the nurse filled a, a long straw-like catheter with the special juice and warned me that the intrauterine insemination would be uncomfortable that my body would rebel, contract, and maybe bleed. She was right. I still cross my legs and cringe. <laughs> then we waited. Today, when we've had a particularly long day of parenting, I try and remember how much waiting and wanting went into all of this. <laughs> we put our bodies, souls, and our relationship on the line for a wish of the heart. A wish that got harder to grasp as the whys and wherefores became more mysterious. The last two weeks of every insemination cycle became more emotionally painful. I hit a very dark place where nothing felt possible, where my faith in myself and in life wavered. I knew that if I went through 12 cycles of insemination without pregnancy, I would be considered infertile. I refused to accept that title. 
It had been several months since we had upped my medical interventions. We added ultrasounds and blood tests, and Alice had been giving me Arbidrel shots to induce ovulation. Shortly before my 12th insemination, after my ultrasound, I received that cycle's second prick of the needle. It would be my last visit to that clinic. Something snapped in me, and I began to cry old, sad tears. I explained to the nurse that I was done, and I left on shaky legs. By that point, it was a relief. We still had sperm on ice, though, so we quickly switched gears. Alice whipped through the fertility obstacle course and had the dreaded HSG, a bond we will always share. And off we went to the first insemination. It was awful, and nothing happened. Another try, still nothing. She was supposed to be the fertile one. My parents took years to make me, and my conception involved secret fertility rituals on St. Kitts, while my parents studied monkey behavior and God knows what else. <laughs> a true story. Alice's mom, on the other hand, just had to look at her dad to get pregnant. There was also the financial stresses. Each cycle was driving us deeper into debt, not to mention the junk food and therapy bills. We were officially broke. We were set to hang up the towel and contact adoption agencies when something miraculous happened. We still can't believe it. But here's a hint. One person in this room engineered this miracle and the other made it possible. And you just heard uh, from the uh, November 12th book and launch and reading How That Novel Idea Bookstore. Uh, the book Swelling with Pride. And the full title, I think that's what it's often shortened to, but the full title is Swelling with Pride, Queer, Conception, and Adoption Stories. And as uh, welcomed, and in, and I apologize, uh, my recorder didn't come on as quickly as I'd hoped. I did miss the very first few words of uh, Sarah Graves' uh, reading, uh, or her welcome, I should say, to the event, and... Uh, uh, but uh, I got most of it in there, but I still apologize for the small portion that I missed. Seem to be having a little bit of trouble here, but it looks like we're back on again. And uh, you heard after her welcome, her greet, and uh, then uh, the f uh, first uh, of four recorded readings that evening. And so you heard uh, the... Uh, the reading uh, by Emily Cummins Woods. And I know I mentioned it earlier, but I don't know if I mentioned it here, but Sarah Grafe is also was also the editor of this uh, anthology. And uh, stay tuned for the second hour today, and you'll hear uh, three more readings, and they will be um, from Jane Byers, uh, Sarah Gray for herself, and then a shared reading uh, with, as I understand, a mother-daughter uh, duo, Susan Myers and Karen Myers-Giddon. Uh, so I do want to thank you so much for having tuned into the first hour today. I can't believe it's almost 5 o'clock already. And uh, again, hope you can stay tuned for the second hour, again, to hear the remainder of that book launch. Uh, you have been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC. My name is Bruce, here every Friday from 4 to 6 o'clock. 
and uh, heads up uh, that each hour of every show of uh, Finding a Voice, uh, today's as well, uh, will be uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after I get home. And you can find it there at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. Uh, the show is also now podcast, uh, so it usually takes, I believe, about 24 to 40 hours uh, to get that uh, into uh, the podcast system. But uh, I would say uh, uh, check uh, CFRC's uh, website for more information about the podcasts in general and even this one possibly uh, at www.cfrc.ca. And it looks like here it is, 5 o'clock. Welcome back into the second hour of today's show. You are listening again to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Again, we are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. And as mentioned already, at least a couple of times, we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. So, coming up in this hour, having heard the first recorded reading at the end of the first hour, uh, we'll continue with three more readings from the November 12th book launch at Novel Idea Bookstore. Uh, again, that is for a nonfiction anthology called Swelling with Pride, Queer Conception and Adoption Stories, as hosted and emceed by editor of that anthology, Sarah Grafe, and... Uh, The remaining three readings will fill this hour. So this first, though, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music uh, played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor, again, the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. Okay, let's go ahead and move into that November 12th book launch. And again, the book Swelling with Pride, Queer Conception and Adoption Stories. Again, hosted and emceed by editor of it, Sarah Grafe. Up next, reading that evening, who she will introduce is Jane Byers. Next up, all the way from Nelson, B.C., um, we have Jane Byers, who grew up here. Um, Jane came out with her second poetry collection, Acquired Community, in 2016 from Caitlin Press, who also published this book. Um, it is a 2017 Goldie Award winner for poetry and is featured on all Lit Up's top 10 social justice publications in Canada. Her debut poetry collection, Stealing Effects, is also published by Caitlin Press. Jane has had poems and essays published in literary journals in Canada, the U.S., and England including the Best Canadian Poetry in English 2014. And she is the 2018 Writer-in-Residence for Simon Fraser University's Allot Archives. Please welcome Jane Byers. Thanks. What a great uh, turnout tonight. Thanks to everybody who came. Sarah, thank you so much um, for ushering all of us through the editing process and for conceiving of this, you know, in the first place, which is a remarkable collection. Um, so I'm going to be talking about uh, adopting uh, our twins, and they are. I'm going to be talking about them when they were 14 months old, and they're now 11, and they're, I think, in the back uh, reading the kids' books. But <laughs> hopefully, they'll come out and show their heads. Um, I also wanted to acknowledge that my mom is here tonight. 
and uh, she has been uh, one of the biggest champions from day one of um, not only when I came out but of um, when we told her we were uh, going to try and adopt and uh, so it's really sweet to have her here tonight. Uh, so this is uh, um, called What If Your Kids Grow Up To Be Straight? <laughs> A few days into our 14-day parenting trial by fire, we suggested taking the twin toddlers that we were in the process of adopting for a hike. The foster mom, who regarded nature as something to be feared, suggested a walk at the mall instead, <laughs> remarking that they'd never been outside in winter. We had to get away from the TV and small quarters and desperately wanted time with the twins alone, not to mention the fresh air we craved and had become accustomed to with our outdoor lifestyle. We gave the foster mom a day to get used to the idea and went the following morning, which was sunny and mild for February. We walked around their acreage on a bench overlooking a lake and down the adjacent country road with the twins on our back. They looked like deer caught in the headlights. Our son soon grew to love it, though, and wanted to go in the backpack again. Our daughter, typically more skeptical early on, wasn't so sure. The foster mother gasped with relief when we re returned from that first hike. I don't think hiking was quite what she meant, however, when she asked us how we felt about going to hell for our lifestyle. This was definitely the low point in our two weeks. After taking a deep breath and concealing my incredulity, excuse me, I suggested we just focus on the kids and told her we didn't think it would be helpful to get into her beliefs. The twins lived with foster parents for the first 14 months of their lives. We were being considered as prospective adoptive parents to this boy and girl, along with about eight other couples initially. Every two weeks or so, we got an update from the social worker stating that we were still in as they whittled it down to six families, then four, then two, and so on. We were particularly nervous about this process after being told we were not a model family for many social workers since we were a same-sex couple. We were asked to do a number of things that we considered extra work because of our same-sex family status. A gay tax, we jokingly called it. <laughs> Nevertheless, we overachieved when asked to write an essay on how we would provide the twins, especially the boy, with positive male role models. We hastily made calls to our male friends confirming weekly playdates and mentorship opportunities. When asked how we provide the opportunities for exposure to their ethnic heritage, given that their bio mom was originally from southern India, we laid out plans in thoughtful detail. Eventually, we were told it was down to us and another family. Being competitive in team sports, we referred to this as the finals. <laughs> Sudden death. <laughs> So it came to be, after many months, that we sat in a government boardroom with beige walls and a view of Kelowna sprawl and met with the evangelical Christian foster parents of the twins. She, soft-featured, maternal and smiling, he, thin, angular and slightly combative, both with thick Scottish accents. They sat at one end of a large table and we sat at the other, buffered by three social workers. 
The foster parents' accents put me at some ease. Perhaps I was endeared to the Scots as a Northern England native. I earned the family right to don a tartan after my people fought with the Scottish against the English in the border wars. Fundamentalism wrapped in a Scottish accent was more palatable somehow. Or perhaps it was my inclination when face to face to find the common ground, knowing that whatever topical differences there are, we humans share many more commonalities. Normally this meeting would not take place. Normally we would meet the kids at the same time as the foster parents and start the adoption transition. However, we were meeting so the Christians could get to know us and ask some questions, noting that they had never knowingly talked to any homosexuals, according to the social worker. At the time, I couldn't have clearly articulated it, but the foster parents considered our behavior an illness, while we considered it our identity. We were meeting to give them an opportunity to accept, or at least tolerate us, before we landed on their doorstep every day for two weeks, while we got to know the children's routines by being with them for every waking hour. Little did we know, but we were meeting so the social workers had an alternative to yanking the children out of their home if the foster parents refused to cooperate with and sanction us as the new parents. Sanctioning is a big part of why we had the overlap, so the kids, not yet verbal, could see them giving us permission to parent as we fed them and bathed them. And the kids would come to think of us as safe and familiar and eventually bond. Over those 14 days, they came to follow us around like ducklings imprinting on what was near. It was the most important job interview of our lives. One of their questions during that meeting was, what will you do if your children grow up to be straight? For real. <laughs> While we would later laugh and shake our heads at the absurdity of this, the foster parents were just expressing, expressing what many privately fear that we can make our children decide their sexuality is a naive, though pervasive, belief. The impetus for insisting boys wear blue clothes, not pink, for refusing boys the freedom to play with dolls, for encouraging passive activities in girls. I always think of the brilliant line in the 90s movie, Leaving Normal, when Darley, played by Christine Lottie, says of a kid's room adorned with hockey and aviation memorabilia, and in which she is bunking for the night. Oh my God, this room has, please God, don't make my son a fag, written all over it. <laughs> I'm just going to jump ahead to uh, a little taste for how the story progresses here. Our daughter goes thrift, sh thrift shopping now with Nana, her foster mother, when we get together, which is usually a couple of times a year. Our daughter returns with dress-up clothes, high heels, sparkly sweaters, and a deep love that comes with having that side of her seen and celebrated. And if you see her in the back, you will see she has high heels on tonight. <laughs> At the same time, our son rides on Papa's tractor as they build something together. We usually have dinner afterwards, all of us glowing with love for the twins. Inevitably, Nana and Papa tell us we are doing a great job and the children are lovely. They always make sure to ask how we are doing and whether we are taking care of our relationship. We are all in authentic relationship with each other instead of relating to stereotypes. The foster parents now raise chickens and grow flowers on their sunny bench. Nana feeds the chickens and collects eggs. 
I like to think that seeing the kids' smiles when we return from our daily walks during our immersive adoption experience and hearing them talk enthusiastically about all our hikes since then has nudged Nana away from fear of an outdoor lifestyle. Maybe we've had a little something to do with that. On one of these visits, I would like to ask the foster parents what they would do if their children grew up to be gay. I still ponder their question, what will you do if your children grow up to be straight? I believe our respective answers would be the same to both questions. Love them, shine them up, and celebrate their identities no matter what. Thank you very much. And you just heard Jane Byers reading in the November 12th book launch of Swelling with Pride, Queer Conception and Adoption Stories. And that was held at Novel Idea Bookstore. Again, emceed by Sarah Grave, who did the welcome earlier and introduced each reader as they came up. Up next, you're going to actually hear Sarah's reading herself in it. Here we go. Um, I'm now going to give you a taste of my story, uh, which is called Best Laid Plans. <laughs> Our early attempts to get pregnant were sensual, softly lit affairs. If there is a fertility goddess, we wanted to make damn sure she was paying attention. Amanda and I held hands and gazed into each other's eyes. Israel Kamakawoli's Hawaiian rendition of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star lapping through shared earbuds. We imagined ourselves on the Maui beach from our honeymoon or under soft sheets in our own bedroom, wishing away the clinical examination table, the crinkly blue hospital paper, my feet up in stirrups. We drew slow, deep breaths together in and out as the clinic nurse threaded the catheter tip up through my vagina and into my cervix. As the nurse pulled the pl pushed the plunger, inseminating me with our donor's sperm, Amanda and I kissed, consciously inviting a baby to share in this, our beautiful life together. <coughs> After the nurse cleaned up and discreetly left the room, Amanda brought me off gently with her hand, the orgasm rocking my body and reclaiming the clinical insemination as an act of love. Maybe it was all a tattoo precious. Two weeks later, my period would inevitably arrive and we'd be reduced to teary, irritable messes, convinced that we'd never be able to conceive in a million years until the next cycle when our hope was rekindled. They don't call it the fertility roller coaster for nothing. Paradoxically, the cycle I finally got pregnant was a total gong show. <laughs> when we picked up our sperm, specially thawed and washed for the intrauterine insemination, or IUI, the clinic lab technician quickly verified the donor number on the tiny vial, thrust it into my hand, and abruptly closed the door without wishing me good luck. On previous attempts, the lab workers had always wished us good luck. It felt like a bad omen. Then, in the insemination room, I barely got my undies off and feet up in stirrups when not one but two nurses barged through the door, so engrossed in idle chit-chat that they barely acknowledged us. We'd been doing this long enough to know the standard clinic protocol, and this definitely was not it. Amanda and I exchanged a paying glance. <coughs> I was always a bundle of nerves before an IUI, and this wasn't helping. To make matters worse, 
One of them was a dead ringer for an ex-girlfriend I'd left on not-so-great terms, from her short, messy hair right down to her thick New Zealand accent. The last person I wanted in the room as Amanda and I tried to make a baby. The nurses must have caught her look because they finally stopped talking. There are going to be two of us today, the Kiwi announced brightly, turning towards us. She indicated her co-worker, a fresh-faced young Asian woman. This is her first time, and I'm here to walk her through it. I wasn't sure what was worse, that my ex's doppelganger was going to hang around and stare at my vagina as her colleague pushed the plunger, or that I was going to be inseminated by a first-timer. We could have saved ourselves the 200 bucks we'd forked out to have the job done by a seasoned professional on top of the $750 a squirt for the donor sperm and given it a whirl at home with the turkey baster. <laughs> Don't worry, the Kiwi nurse continued half to me, half to her colleague. First time lucky, right? I'll try my best. The young nurse shot me a reassuring smile as she gently inserted the duck lips. Her gentle touch and delicate bedside, or sorry, delicate touch and gentle bedside manner immediately calmed me down. She could do my pap smear any day. <laughs> this was only our third cycle, but the pressure was on. If it didn't take, my reproductive endocrinologist wanted me to undergo laparoscopic surgery to investigate the possibility of endometriosis, something I desperately hoped to avoid. It seemed preposterous anyway. What straight couple trying in the privacy of their own bedroom rushes out for surgery if they're not pregnant yet after three short months? But as a queer couple, we were playing through the nose for these clinical inseminations, and the doctor didn't want to waste our time or money. The young nurse was now oh so gently threading the catheter tip up through my vagina. She really did have the magic touch. I tried to breathe and relax into the procedure, but her colleague wouldn't shut up. <laughs> as Amanda held my hand and gazed lovingly into my eyes, my ex's evil twin kept peppering us with questions, <laughs> some relevant, how many cycles have you been trying, but mostly none of her business. Which sperm bank did you use? How did you decide who was going to carry? Do you care if it's a boy or a girl? All while coaching her trainee through the insemination process. You just kind of feel your way up to the cervix. I tried to focus on my breathing, both to tune her out and to take my mind off the intense discomfort I was now feeling in my pelvic area. But just as the young nurse located my cervix and inserted the catheter, the Kiwi began filling her in about pain and how this procedure didn't hurt. Remember what Emily said about this earlier? I gritted my teeth. What the fuck was she talking about? <laughs> On an earlier attempt, I'd had the most awful cramping as the catheter went in. I must have said something out loud because the Kiwi turned to me with a whole new slew of questions and a mini seminar on the nature of the pain I'd experienced. I, I'd rather not discuss it just now, I managed finally, just as her colleague fast-tracked our donorous semen into my cervix. For a pregnancy that had been so meticulously planned, it was the most unromantic conception imaginable. Mm. As we hurried to the car to get back to work, half laughing, half cringing at how awful it had been, I convinced myself that this time it definitely wouldn't take. I was already half wishing my period would hurry up and come early so we could start again clean slate. Wouldn't it be ironic if I did get pregnant this time, I quipped, and we have to think back on this as the moment of our child's conception. <laughs> if you get pregnant this time, Amanda grinned, then none of this will matter. 
going to skip ahead uh, towards the end of the story. Most of the story is about how we went from being absolutely <laughs> sure we wanted uh, a known donor, someone who could be an uncle figure in our child's life, to realizing actually what we really needed or what would work better for us is having an anonymous donor who is open to who's open to later contact when our child turns 18. And so this is about our process of finding that anonymous donor. We were a tad daunted when we first logged on to the cryobank's website and found ourselves faced with hundreds of options. But once we entered our basic criteria that we were looking for an open ID donor who was Canadian compliant, meaning his American approved sperm had passed the extra rigorous tests required by Health Canada, the list of eligible donors shrank down to a more manageable 30. As we zeroed in on donors with a similar physical appearance and cultural background to Amanda, we were down to eight possible contenders and began to worry about the opposite problem, slim pickings. <laughs> to get more information, we had to shell out a couple of hundred bucks for the privilege of viewing the full donor profiles. As we were beginning to discover, the more badly you wanted something in this process, the more you had to pay. So we held our noses and entered our credit card info. Up popped personal specs on each donor, a sample baby and adult photo, pertinent medical info, detailed paternal, maternal, and sibling family histories, and a self-assessed personality profile. There was a lot to absorb, but these extended profiles started to give us a sense of these donors as living, breathing people, as opposed to a faceless number. But whom were we going to choose? Online shopping for half your child's genetic material isn't exactly like ordering from Amazon. <laughs> Each profile also included a personal essay, which was ultimately the clincher. As a writer, I'm always a sucker for a good essay, but in this case, it went well beyond that. The donor's personalities really shone through on the page. Many guys who look good in their profile completely bombed in the essay department. Some would say things along the lines of, actually, I just needed some extra cash to get through school. <laughs> While we applauded these guys for their honesty and resourcefulness, this wasn't necessarily the type of statement Amanda and I wanted to show our kid when they started asking questions about their donor. Others used their essay to frame their jerking off into a cup as a noble act of charity, which was all well and good, except the language was often unfortunate. I just want to help all those poor and fertile mothers and fathers out there. Even though I hadn't yet experienced infertility, the phrasing made me wince. At least they hadn't said barren. Not only that, but we were completely off their radar as a fertile queer couple. Was this someone our child could contact at 18 and talk with freely about growing up in a family with two mums? Hard to gauge, and we didn't want to risk it. Worse yet, a surprising number of essays exposed the writers as evangelical Christians. Initial sentiments of charity would quickly balloon into full-blown sermons as the donor seized the opportunity to preach the word of God to their potential offspring. Presumably not folk who'd welcome contact from our child down the road other than to save them from their sinful upbringing. Then came the young family doctor who had been an honor student, as I had been, and a successful athlete like Amanda. His baby photo was adorable, and his adult photo confirmed that he'd grown up to be a handsome man. He had similar features and coloring to Amanda, and bonus, he even had dimples. Amanda had fallen for mine the moment we first met, when I'd flashed her a shy smile at a cheesy LGBT speed dating event. <laughs> I hope our kids have dimples too, she used to whisper as we cuddled in bed, her finger tracing the tiny indentation in my cheek. If our donor had dimples, she'd be doubling her odds. 
<laughs> the doctor donor was also a mix of Amanda's and my cultural backgrounds in both the formal personality tests and in his responses to the more general social lifestyle questions. He came across as a lovely, gentle, thoughtful man, an extroverted introvert who worked hard and was highly motivated both in his career and recreational pursuits someone who was not donating sperm for God, thank goodness, but as he put it, in the same spirit with which he donated blood to the Red Cross. All in all, someone not unlike us, an engaging, liberal-minded person we'd probably enjoy having over for dinner. His essay sealed the deal. If you are reading this, he started, you no doubt have quite an interesting relationship with me, which may or may not be easy to accept. We were so surprised that we had to reread that first sentence multiple times. He was actually addressing the child in the first person. He clearly understood that this kid would have tons of questions about their origins and would be reading these very words down the road. No other donor we'd encountered so far had thought to do this. Some of what I will tell you may make this acceptance more difficult, but is important to what I am, and by extension, what your background is. He totally got the complexity of his role as anonymous donor and of his unusual relationship with our potential child. He went on to talk about what an inspiration and role model his own father had been. He outlined a few key principles he'd learned from his dad, values that have guided his life and that very much meshed with our own. Everything from the importance of education, working hard and keeping your eye on your goals, to eating your vegetables and remembering to smile because it has a wonderful effect on people. <laughs> he called himself a bit of a goof, talked about his love of animals and the outdoors, his appreciation for all kinds of music even though he can't carry a tune, and his passion for sports, too many to list. In closing he wrote, the fact that your parents cared enough and wanted to have you badly enough to go to the extent they did is very special indeed. This is leaps and bounds further toward being your parents than anything I have done. I hope for the very best for you in life and you will certainly make your parents proud. Bingo. We found our donor. <laughs> Dr. Boy, we affectionately dubbed him because he was so much younger than us and still so boyish in his adult photo. How could he possibly be old enough to practice medicine? Thank you. And you just heard uh, that evening's MC, and she was the editor as well, Sarah Graves own reading in the November 12th book launch of Swelling with Pride, Queer Conception and Adoption Stories held at Novel Idea Bookstore. And up next in it, you'll hear uh, the final reading that evening uh, and a duo reading with uh, by uh, Susan Myers and Kira Myers-Giddon. Here it is off tonight with a fabulous um, mother-daughter uh, duo of Susan Myers and Kira Myers-Giddon. Um, I think what makes me particularly excited about introducing you both, um, I knew Susan back when I lived here in Kingston, and something I read about in my essay, which I didn't read from tonight, as when I first started coming out at the end of my time in, in Kingston, I sort of had the impression that, you know, kissing my girl, first girlfriend meant sort of kissing motherhood goodbye. It didn't seem, I, I didn't, uh, the only uh, lesbians I knew with children at the time had had children from previous uh, sort of, uh, yeah, relationships with, with men. And uh, I went on and moved to Vancouver, and then I heard that Susan and uh, her partner Barb were expecting a baby who was at Kira, and I thought, wow, this is sort of 
kindled this new hope in me that this was possible. So really cool to have you both here to, to share your story. And uh, let me, uh, sorry, I forgot you. So excited, I forgot your bios. Okay. <laughs> so Susan, mother, psychologist, and runner from right here in Kingston, Ontario. She loves tackling many things, uh, going to school, being political, treating traumatized kids, teaching, gardening, running some slow marathons, and learning to be a calmer and better person. <laughs> Inspiration for us all. Um, <laughs> her hardest and most rewarding endeavor is being a mom. And she will be joined up here by Kira Myers-Giddon, who is passionate about creating queer theater that is representative of her community. Her works have been performed at festivals such as Impact, Gay Play Day, and Outfest. She is an alumna of the Women's Room, an all-female playwriting unit, and she is currently pursuing her degree at York University's Theatre and Performance Studies program. She has a new one-person show, Queer Spawn, in development with Pat the Dog, which I believe opens in a few weeks in yes, Kitchener, Ontario. on November 21st in uh, <laughs> November 20th. at the Kitchener-Waterloo Art Gallery. So here in the area. Queer Spawn content. Okay, so um, Sarah originally um, emailed me and said, I'm doing this book thing, <laughs> and I think you have a, an interesting story to tell, and my response was, oh my god, I'm not a writer, I'm a psychologist. <laughs> so uh, we got beyond that, and so um, I wrote um, something in conjunction with Kira, um, coming from my psychological background, so we had to make it scientific. We did. We did. So New this, for me. Yeah. <laughs> this is from the Queer Baby Project, excerpts from the experiment. The following article contains excerpts from the ongoing longitudinal study of lesbian mothering conducted by the first author and endured by the second. <laughs> <laughs> the primary voice is that of the mother with commentary by the daughter who of course never asked to be born into this. <laughs> so as with most uh, scientific studies, people don't read the first parts. Um, they just skip to the end, so that's what we're gonna we're gonna kind of go from the middle <laughs> on, and so to get the first part with all of that good story about the uh, insemination and everything else, you're gonna have to buy the book. So here we go from the uh, results section. Okay, it was a warm night in October. The federal election was in full swing, and Kim Campbell's progressive conservatives were slugging it out with Jean Chrétien's liberals. The Toronto Blue Jays were slugging it out with the Philadelphia Phillies in Game 6 of the World Series. A win that night could clinch the series, but the Blue Jays were down 6-5 in the bottom of the ninth, and yet Joe Carter stepped up to the plate and hit a home run that drove in three runs for the win and the series. We jumped to our feet, cheered and danced. And Barb said, I think I peed myself. <laughs> it wasn't pee. Her water broke, sort of. So began days of minor contractions and calls to our birth coach. Was this really happening? We were finally going to see that little person that we'd been talking to, singing to, and hoping for all that time. When we went to the obstetrician on Monday, she was horrified that Barb's water broke on Saturday and we didn't call. <laughs> didn't we know the risk of infection increases once the amniotic sac was broken? <laughs> no. <laughs> the obstetrician decided to induce immediately. 
Off we went, directly to the birthing room, calling our birth coach to come right away. Barb quickly got to know what contractions really were like. <laughs> our visions of a, again, the lesbian quiet birth vision <laughs> with just our coach and us with a quick visit from the obstetrician for delivery quickly began to morph into something else monitors for barb a fetal monitor for the baby ivs for the induction and many long hours of waiting for barb's cervix to dilate as she was having strong contractions we called barb's mom in toronto to say that barb had been induced and she would be a grandma in a while and we promised to call once things began to progress more we called back to find that she wasn't there and had already headed for the train station. Oh. <laughs> More hours of pain for Barb, many trips for me to the break room to get ice, ice chips and watch the election on TV. <laughs> the progressive conservatives were getting trounced by the liberals. Barb was getting trounced by contractions and little dilation. The plan for a drug-free birth gave way for the relief of an epidural. How come they never said how great this is? <laughs> I don't care, I can't feel my legs. This is good. <laughs> An intimate birth gave way to a series of doctors, residents, and med students. Is it all right if I examine you, they would ask? To which Barb would cry out, as long as you don't hurt me. <laughs> Barb drifted in and out of tired sleep. I was wide awake, battling instant insomnia as soon as the monitors bleeped. I soon heard the tap of high heels on the hospital linoleum and the squeak of a rolling suitcase as my mum-in-law arrived in the middle of the night. <laughs> but Jesus, it's happening! She murmured in the loudest stage whisper. <laughs> I settled her on the cot for a sleep. Finally, in the wee hours of the morning, dilation had progressed. The chief resident began to help with the delivery. Birth coach, mum-in-law, and I held Barb's hands and helped her breathe while she pushed and pushed and pushed. <laughs> Isn't the baby supposed to be coming soon? It didn't happen like this in the movie. <laughs> With each push, push, it seemed like more medical staff arrived. I could swear the housekeeping staff was there and someone was selling tickets to the birth. <laughs> the head of obstetrics arrived, our fertility doctor, and started talking about forceps in a C-section. Barb simply said, get this baby out. <laughs> the resident remained calm, tried to turn the baby a bit more, and finally used the forceps. Amazingly, out slid our daughter, a girl. The medical staff then said they had to take our just newborn baby to the neonatal intensive care unit, NICU. The risk of infection was high since Barb's water broke so long before she was born. Damn Joe Carter and his home run. <laughs> and she had a bit of trouble breathing. Someone from NICU was on their way. A nurse arrived in scrubs with a light-up jack-o'-lantern pin on her uniform. It was almost Halloween and bundled our baby up. I said I would go with her. Barb, fully feeling her load of drugs and the relief of having given birth, was busy hitting on the chief resident. <laughs> what a nice name. As we breezed out of the room. <laughs> yeah, you didn't read that part, did you? <laughs> As we hastily moved along the hospital corridors, the nurse asked, so you're the grandmother? Oh my God, I thought, I've just turned 40 and just become a mom for the first time. Do I look like a <laughs> No, I'm the other mother. The other mother? Yes, my partner Barb is the mother and I'm the other mother? Right, the other mother. And you're a nurse in NICU. Well, yes, I work in NICU, but I'm a neonatologist. Oh, right, the neonatologist. <laughs> 
By the time we swung through the doors of NICU with my daughter Kira, we had both sorted out our stereotypes and were ready to sort out how Kira was doing. <laughs> Luckily, fears that she might have meningitis or a serious infection were dispelled within a few hours, and she settled quickly into her incubator. Barb got some much-needed rest from the lengthy labor as I stayed with our daughter until she could join Barb and her grandma. Everyone in NICU knew I was her mom, and I learned to respect the hard work of all the staff members there, neonatologists included. <laughs> so we spring to the section of the study that talks about what does this all mean? <laughs> the discussion. So the first part of the Queer Baby Project was a success. We managed to add a wonderful daughter to our lesbian family. However, we soon found out that not everyone considered us a family. At the hospital, we filled in the statement of live birth to register Kira's birth. Under the section for parents, Barb put her information on her mother, and I scratched out the father heading and titled it Partner, Other Mother, <laughs> where I filled out my information. We sent it off to the Vital Statistics Office in Kingston, Ontario. As we settled into our new life of sleep deprivation and learning how to be parents, we received a phone call from the city of Kingston, which indicated that they couldn't register Kira's birth. She needed to be registered under her biological parents. We explained that we had gone to the fertility clinic and that there wasn't a father, just an anonymous sperm donor, with Barb as the birth mom. Kira had two parents, Barb and me. They replied that they couldn't send on the information to the Provincial Department of Vital Statistics because the form was filled in incorrectly. We politely asked them to send it to the Provincial Department anyway. Glad to have it off their desk, they agreed to send it and let us know that we would be hearing from the province shortly. Growing up, Mother's Day was a big deal in my house. <laughs> I'm sure you can imagine with two moms I had to make double the peanut butter and jam sandwiches, which of course I made on the floor. <laughs> Alternatively, Father's Day was just another day. However, when you're in elementary school, teachers like to have kids craft for these days. So when I was in grade four, my teacher told us to bring one of our dad's old ties in so that we could create a piece of artwork for Father's Day. When I told my moms this, they either scavenged the house or made a quick trip to Valley Village because when crafting day came upon us, I had a tie. <laughs> I decided to make this art for my granddad. I would call my granddad each Father's Day and every summer I would go to granddad camp, so he acted as my father figure. <laughs> Fast forward 14 years later to me announcing to my granddad that I am getting married to my longtime female partner, who he has met multiple times, might I add. He responds that I am no longer his best girl. After a few pointed phone calls where he told me that he didn't agree with what I do, but still wanted to be part of my life, just not the gay part, and me telling him that he's a homophobic jerk, we are now no longer speaking. I was flabbergasted. I have grown up with this man who has been a part of his lesbian daughter, her partner, and their kid's life for as long as I have been alive, yet as soon as the queer spawn identifies as queer, we're an abomination. One of the main reasons I have decided to kick him out of my life is because he said that he knew the children of lesbians would continue this shameful lifestyle. <laughs> Yeah, now he can insult me and misunderstand me all that he wants, but he can't give my parents trouble for raising me. My queerness is my own, and it's not a negative reflection of my mom's. If anything, they provided me with a household where I could be myself self without judgment. So, goodbye, homophobic granddad, and goodbye Father's Day along with him. It was a Friday night, and I was working late at the Children's Mental Health Center. 
my phone rang, and the person on the line identified himself as the Deputy Minister of Vital Statistics of the Province of Ontario. <laughs> I think he was hoping to leave a voicemail. <laughs> he informed me that he was not able to register Kira's birth as he could not list me as her parent under the Vital Statistics Act, since I wasn't her biological parent. I noted that I wasn't sure why a child's birth certificate had to have biological parents listed, since the fertility clinic that we had used had a stipulation that heterosexual couples who used their services would indicate on the statement of live birth that they were the parents, regardless of their biological length. Fathers who weren't biological fathers put their names down and were accepted by the province's parents. Was the province conducting paternity and maternity tests before issuing birth certificates? He admitted that they were not, but noted that these were unusually rare cases. <laughs> this, of course, doesn't include the usual rates of 5 to 15% of fathers who aren't aware that their offspring aren't their biological children. <laughs> Our conversation became a bit less civil after that, especially after his imputations that the fabric of society might unravel if anyone could willy-nilly call themselves a parent. I reimbursed my agency for the phone that cracked when I slammed it down that evening. <laughs> So we looked at other ways that I could legally be Kira's mom. Socially, there was no problem with me being her mom, except for the occasional mishap of being thought to be her grandmother. Our friends and families were thrilled with her and treated us both as moms, mummy and mama. But we worried about what would happen if something happened to Barb. I wouldn't be able to make legal or medical decisions for Kira. I might not be able to travel with her, or even be with her if someone with a stronger biological tie wanted to parent her. All these things that we didn't think of when we began our great experiment. When I was a kid, I did gymnastics. My mom Susan would usually take me to gymnastics since it was <coughs> 6 p.m. on Mondays and Barb was almost always still working. <laughs> I loved gymnastics, but the reason I stopped was because the people I was training with. I wasn't a tall, slim, popular girl. Instead, I was short and stout and I just wanted to do as many cartwheels as possible in a row. <laughs> Apparently, my fellow gymnasts' taste for me traveled upstairs to the viewing area towards my mother. Susan discovered that the girls learned how to make fun of my weight from their moms. <coughs> my mother's queerness, I imagine, also sparked some tension. One day, I was getting changed in the change room, and one kid kept asking me, referring to my mom, Who's that? Now, Barb was at the gym the previous week, which had sparked the sudden interest in my parents. Good thing I was learning about Kelso's choices in school. Now, Kelso, he's a big green frog that teaches kids strategies to resolve conflict. Check him out. He's a very cool dude. <laughs> so I practiced my newly learned Kelso's choices, and I ignored her, but she kept on pushing. She followed me out of the change room, pointed at my mom, and loudly asked that all of my peers and my poor mother could hear, Who's that? Storming out of the gym, I responded, My grandma! I will never forget the look on my mom's face. This is one of the first times that I learned that I should be ashamed of my family and that queerness is something to hide. My mother, being an amazing person, laughed it off as she played with me and tried to figure out why I said what I said. However, being a queer person myself, I can only imagine the pain that I caused her to think that her own kid was, sh was ashamed of her. Now, I don't remember that what if I experienced was that day was shame or annoyance or confusion, but whatever it was, I'm sure didn't feel good for my mom. 
I've now learned that Susan was mistaken as my grandparent since the birthing room, so this wasn't anything new to her. But I still feel bad. <laughs> Kids can internalize shame even if that language is never thrown at them. It's the way that you're treated, talked about, and seen by others that teaches kids, even at the ripe age of six, that you should call your queer mom your grandma so that you don't have to explain alternative fertilization for the fifth time that week. It felt, it felt like I was constantly coming out as queer spawn, but that one time I just wanted to stay in the closet. It was 1994, <laughs> and things are pretty bleak for non-biological lesbian parents. Nonetheless, we began a mission to ensure that I, as a non-biological parent, was considered a parent in the eyes of the law in Ontario. It wasn't 2003 when the first same-sex marriage cases were triumphant in Ontario. It wasn't 2005 when Canada joined the ranks of countries allowing same-sex marriage. It wasn't 2007 yet either when an Ontario Superior Court judge ruled that couples who use anonymous sperm donors should enjoy the same rights as those who conceive naturally although the judge left out those whose donor was known to them. And it wasn't January 2017 when the All Families Are Equal Act was proclaimed in Ontario, ensuring that same-sex parents who use a sperm or egg donor or surrogate are legally recognized as parents. A couple years ago, a coworker asked me what my parents do for work. So I responded, well, my one mom's a real estate agent and my other mom is a psychologist for kids' mental health. Silence. Great. So I quickly asked, what about your parents? Oh, my dad does this, my mom does that. Cool. And a couple minutes go by, and I could tell she's just trying to work something out in her head. She's like, one mom plus one mom equals no dad? But where is dad? Is there a stepmom? How can there be two moms? <laughs> and then the inevitable question happened. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be rude. Uh, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. It's just that spit it out. Uh, so you have two moms? Or no, your dad's a psychologist, right? Yeah, no, I have two moms. But where's your dad? I don't have one. Oh. And then she looks at me with such pity. At that point, I began to feel bad. I don't want her to think that one of my parents had died or something, so I launch into the next explanation. I have two moms, they are lesbians. Yes, it's always been that way. Oh, I see. Yeah, cool. <laughs> uh-huh. But wait, who's your real mom? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I will explain to someone until I'm blue in the face the many different ways so many different bodies can have babies, but I am a lot less patient when one starts to peg one of my mother's motherhood as invalid. So I go, what do you mean? <laughs> uh, oh, you, you know, I, like, which one's the real one? Like, you know, like, um, sorry, what are you saying? Uh, like, <laughs> which one had you? They both did. They're both my mom. Now, she was visually sweaty and squirming and confused and goes, but <clears throat> how does that work? And I start to feel bad for the little lamb. It's obvious she was questioning everything she ever knew about the vagina and was thinking that I was some alien baby. <laughs> so I decided to put her out of her misery. Oh, do you mean which one birthed me? 
My mom did. <laughs> Sometimes I'll tell someone which one actually birthed me, but then I get the sense that I, I, they feel that my other mother is less of a mom because of that. Also, I never ask people with parents who pass as heterosexual who birthed the kids, because PSA, dads can also become pregnant. Trans people exist. But I digress. <laughs> We took the only route, which had been opened up by a few brave lesbian parents in Ontario, who had used the court to ensure that both parents were legally viewed as such, not just having their names on the birth certificate. They had petitioned their family courts to use adoption measures, like those often used by heterosexual step-parents to grant legal parenthood to the non-biological mom. So off we went to court to adopt our own daughter. <laughs> we jumped through the hoops of having to see the social worker at the Frontenac Children's Aid Society, where Barb was given the social worker's card, just in case you change your mind about giving her up for adoption, and going through a cursory home study. In 1995, we finally attended the Unified Family Court in Kingston, having paid a few thousand dollars to a lawyer, and were granted the privilege of both becoming the legal parents of our daughter. So it's now 2018, and the experiment is still ongoing. <laughs> Data has already been collected for the school years, preschool through university, the transition to young adulthood for the child, and mature years for the parents, <laughs> and marriage for both the parents and child. Analysis is ongoing. Future excerpts may be published as they become available. <laughs> And let's have a big round of applause for all our readers. Thank you to Oscar and Novel Idea for hosting us. And thanks to all of you for being such an attentive, generous audience. Thanks for coming out. There are uh, books here for sale. I know we'd be delighted to sign a copy. Um, it can find out what happened in the rest of those stories. <laughs> um, and please feel free to hang around, chat with us. Uh, yeah, it's been lovely to have you all out today. Yeah, thank, thank you for coming. Thank you. And you just heard a duo reading by Susan Mother Daughter, Susan Myers and Kira Myers Gidden, uh, in their uh, at the I should say November 12th book launch of Swelling with Pride: Queer Conception and Adoption Stories. Again, held at Novel Idea Bookstore. Again, uh, the event emceed uh, by editor of that anthology, Sarah Grafe, and then her closing remarks that evening. Tell you what, let's do this and I will be right back. I mean, if there's a listener-supported radio station, you're, it means that people can get daily, every day, a different way of looking at the world, not just what the corporate media want you to see, but a different picture, a different understanding, but a different picture, a different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become uh, human, you know. That's the way you become human participants in a, in a social and political system.
Do you like waffles? Do you like waffles on a Saturday morning? Do you like things that are good and dislike things that are bad? Then you should listen to Waffles every Saturday morning on CFRC 101.9 FM from 8 a.m. until 10 a.m. Everybody likes waffles. Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the campus and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on CFRC.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at CFRC.ca. Do you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let The Hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays. Only on CFRC 101.9 FM. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Uh, the station itself is located in Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. And my name is Bruce. I'm here every Friday afternoon with Finding a Voice uh, between 4 and 6 o'clock. And uh, we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And I didn't uh, get a chance to uh, go through any of the calls for submissions. I did get us through next week, though, with the upcoming events. Uh, the calls for submissions, there is one expiring very quickly. And so I want to get to that and see how far I can get uh, through the list because there are at least two more uh, coming up in February. But before I do that, I do want to, uh, maybe I'll do my closing remarks here now. I've got a song, actually, for change to take us out. Uh, I want to remind you, uh, give you a heads up that uh, each hour of every show uh, each week uh, is uploaded to CFRC's uh, website in the archives for up to 90 days. Uh, my particular show uh, will be uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after I get home. And uh, it's uh, you can access that at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. It will remain there for four years. And uh, coming up, I want to encourage you, too, to, uh, uh, after the song, uh, stay tuned. Uh, at the top of the hour for Saltwater Music uh, coming up, hosted by Rob Carnell, and uh, two hours of East Coast music. So hope you can stay tuned for that. And I do want to thank you for having tuned in today. So I do have a couple of minutes here uh, for these calls for submissions. Uh, the one is actually extended. I uh, was originally supposed to expire on January 30th. It now runs until February 6th, and the call for submissions is the 2019 Voden Prize National Competition, uh, and uh, the Dan School of Drama and Music at Queens, in partnership with Kingston Writers Fest, is proud to announce 2019 Voden Prize National Competition. First prize, $15,000. Second prize, $7,500. 
and uh, that is a playwriting competition. And uh, you have now until uh, February 6th uh, to get your uh, submission in. And uh, I'm going to give you the link below. Uh, the link here is uh, uh, sdm.queensu.ca and then slash the dash votin dash prize slash again sdm.queensu.ca slash the dash votin dash prize slash so if you're a playwright and you want to get in this pretty healthy purse there Another call for submissions, a prose competition for emerging writers. The Writers' Union of Canada is accepting uh, submissions for the 26th annual short prose competition for emerging writers. Uh, Their deadline is February 15th, so coming right up. More information, www.writersunion.ca. And then if you want to get to the page, slash short-prose-competition. And then also uh, the Bronwyn Wallace Award for Emerging Writers. Uh, they tell you to submit five to ten pages of unpublished poetry by February 18th. Chance to win $10,000. Again, that deadline, February 18th, www.writerstrust.com, slash awards, slash RBC, dash Bronwyn, dash Wallace, dash award dash for dash emerging dash writers and that does it for me thank you again for tuning in do stay tuned for two hours of east coast music with rob carnell here is feist this podcast is produced in collaboration with cfrc.ca in kingston ontario cfrc is located on traditional anishinaabe and haudenosaunee territory Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.